Ben Goshen is a New York-based, Israeli-born classical artist. After serving in the military, Ken decided to pursue painting full-time. After teaching art in Israel for a few years, Ken decided to move to New York City. He now paints, teaches, and has his own podcast series, Art's Cool. In this episode, we dive into his daily business operations and how he manages his time. Let's get started. Ken Goshen. I was born in Jerusalem, Israel. Uh, I've lived there till I was about 25, moved to New York, and have been in New York ever since. In terms of my art education, I studied at an art high school, and I studied classical painting at a school called Hatachana in Tel Aviv for three years. And I did my degree at Parsons, Parsons School of Design here in New York. And, you know, I'm a working artist. I live in Queens. I teach painting. I teach drawing. And that's, uh, that's pretty much uh, the sum of it. That's my elevator bio, as they say. That's really cool. What do you, um, how, how do you enjoy your time in Israel? I love Israel. It's yeah. uh, an absolutely magical country that, um, you know, I miss dearly. The issue with why I chose to move to the U.S. has to do with the fact that, you know, different countries, different societies value different things. And Israel, well, Israelis have a very pragmatic temperament, right? It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's, it's a, how do you call it? It's an idiosyncratic uh, situation that's going on there because these are, these are people who are very focused on the down to earth um, and not they don't have a lot of bandwidth to deal with cultural stuff. So the cultural production in Israel in many ways is a little bit lacking, in my opinion. And it, it's, it's possible that it's going to develop because, you know, it's a very young country, too. And it doesn't it doesn't have the rich cultural history of the United States or or the or Europe when it comes to visual art. But for now, let's just say that when I go visit in Israel, right, I would get into small talk with whoever like i'm in a cab and some the driver would ask me like what do you do and i say um, i'm an artist and he says no no not not your hobby like uh, right. what do you what do you do what's your job so in israel it's kind of the case that if you don't work in high tech or lawyer or uh you know those real professions quote unquote then um it's kind of hard to get by so i hope to see a future where that changes and i hope even more to be part of that change. Uh, but it is not yet the case that uh, artists are as appreciated as they are in the United States and uh, everything that stems from it in terms of the logistics around art and the cultural institutions around art. They're just young. There's, mm -hmm. They're just really young. And it's a pretty small country. That's one thing that I think is uh, interesting whenever you go abroad you kind of realize like, oh, the U.S. is actually a pretty fairly large company or country. And, that you know, there's just opportunities that rise um, with having that many people in one location underneath one flag. And you got to you know, you hear about other countries like every Israeli that I've met. So I was in uh, Mexico for four months just before this and uh, really cool time work on my Spanish. And also it's a little cheaper so I can uh, make my money stretch further as I'm trying to start this company. And um, so I met a few Israelis and that was one thing that they always mentioned was how it was just a, a small country and they, you know, they, they enjoyed it. You know, um, 
there's a lot of patriotism, especially with Israel, which I thought was really beautiful. Uh, but yeah, they, yeah, they just kept highlighting, you know, it's a really small country. It's not a ton of opportunities, uh, just within all different forms of, you know, how you can make a living. Um, like you said, you got to kind of be in finance or tech. Um, yeah, really but if you a, are in high tech, if you're a, if you're a programmer, there's no better place to be, right? It's like the startup capital of the world, pretty much. Mm-hmm. It's a small country with with very focused attention, and it just isn't focused on visual arts <laughs> right now. Um, but for for some industries, it's like the best place to be. Art right. just happens to not be one of them as of now. Mm-hmm. I actually, I went to Israel back in 2012. Um, so my parents are very Christian and Christians, um, you know, with, you know, they think you know, since Jesus was a Jew, uh, Jewish people, they're, um, uh, chosen, like the chosen people for, for God. Uh, so, and, and then obviously there's just so many, you know, it's Jerusalem and just Israel as a whole, um, so much crossover between Judaism and Christianity, but we also went to Egypt and, um, Jordan and best trip of my life still to this date. Uh, but Tel Aviv, I wasn't, I'm not Christian, but the, um, going to Israel was awesome. The, yeah, the food was incredible. It used a lot of walking. I love walkable cities because I live in Texas and got to drive everywhere. And so just being able to get out, go walk, um, it's very neighborhood feel. Um, I don't know. I, I love, I love Israel. I really hope to get And the there. beach. Yeah. Of don't course. forget about the beach. The beach. And I'm hesitant to say it, but I got to say it. the people are just so beautiful. I mean, just like. They eat kosher, they walk everywhere, they're outside, they're exercising, and Israelis and their culture have such a uh, live now type mentality and just like fully, you know, understand like you're in the youngest body that you're going to be right now. So just be more present and uh, it's just a beautiful way of living. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you, you uh, so you've been painting, uh, I, from what I've gathered, you've been considered, I guess, yourself as an artist, or you've been doing a lot of art since you were five years old. At what point did you decide to turn this into an actual profession? Well, that's a that's a really good question. So I think there wasn't really a point where where I made this decision more so when I was when I joined the military, uh, which everybody most people in Israel do. I served for three years and and during that time I wasn't able to paint, right? So I, I painted a lot as a teenager because I, I went to art high school and I was really enthusiastic about it. And then you have this kind of forced three-year break where you can't do the thing that you love the most. And what I felt was I had all this pent-up painterly energy, right? Mm-hmm. It's like three years, you can't really paint. And then what I thought to myself is, okay, so now I'm done with the army. Most people, what they do is they take like a long trip to quote-unquote right. find themselves or clear their head. So they like go to India, they go to Mexico, they go to many places. This is very common for Israelis. And I had no inclination whatsoever to take any of those trips. What I wanted to, I said, I'm going to take a year and I'm going to just paint all day. That's that's what I felt like I really wanted to do. So I thought to myself, this, this is going to be my after army experience. And so I signed up for a classical painting school. And I, I just saw myself devoting this time to just painting nonstop. And it just became an addiction. You know, the year stopped and, you know, the year ended, I mean, and I just couldn't envision a future in which i don't do that anymore so it just snowballed were you were you did you have enough financial runway like did the military pay you and you had like place to stay you know how were you able to devote a year uh financially to building up your craft yeah i had i had a few you know i had some savings 
I had support from family. And also, it wasn't an academic institution. Uh, so it was super cheap. You know, it was just super duper cheap to go to school there. And even academic institutions in Israel are way cheaper than they are in the United States, like by enormous margins. You could, you could get through an academic year on like, you know, $3,000. So it's, it's, uh, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's a pretty affordable education in Israel is just way more affordable. It's interesting. What do you, why do you think that is? Why do I think that is? Yeah. Uh, do you think the government's subsidizing think, some of it? I, or do you think... I mean, I know the government is subsidizing some of this, but I okay. think it's it's more so the case that in it's not that the system in Israel is functioning magically. It's that the U.S. system is broken yes. beyond belief. Yeah, okay, it's that's what just I was kind of unbelievable <laughs> what yeah, you guys insanity. are up to, like the inflation of prices to think that there are some universities, you know, the top universities in the U.S. that charge over $50,000 mm-hmm. a year. This is, you know, you guys got to get your stuff together because this That's is an, just a nightmare. Yep. So yeah, it's not the case major. that... The, oh, sorry, go oh, ahead. I'm saying in most other places in, around the world, that's not the price of education. Right. So, and I, I'm not calling for like, I'm not, this funny, you know, not mo- I've done some podcasts, but few have, few have dragged me into politics, but I'm, 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 will, I'm willing <laughs> to go space. where the conversation yeah. goes. Yeah. It's like, I'm not, it's not that I'm saying that it should be illegal or anything to charge that much. I, I, I'm a big believer that institutions should be charging whatever they want, but I don't think institutions that are charging this much should have any government support. Like, why are they asking for help? These are right. the richest institutions. If their endowments are ridiculous. And the fact that they are still, most of them considered nonprofits and get that kind of status and basically get assistance. Mm-hmm. I, I just cannot understand what's going on. It's a scam. I mean, it's that simple. I was a nutrition major and it took over a year before I got into a class in nutrition. I was retaking classes from high school. And then after four total years as a nutrition major, you know, only half your classes are about nutrition and none of them are actually like, you know, there's not a set curriculum. It's just like, oh, here's 15 classes to kind of talk about nutrition, you know, all different shapes and sizes about like all the way from the science, all the way to, you know, the social policy or political policies and, you know, just study it. And, and then afterwards you can come back and actually we'll get you a license to be a dietitian. It's like, why don't we just start there and let's skip all the other classes and just do two years. And I learn how to become a dietitian so I can go earn some money. It's like charging people um, a lot of money for gas. Um, you know, you need gasoline to get somewhere, just like you need an education to get somewhere. And you can't charge $10 a gallon for gas. Um, you know, there's definitely some regulation in, in that regard, but they just got, they've gotten away with it. It's, um, it's an archaic uh, system overall, but you know, hopefully the entrepreneurial, you know, grassroots effort can kind of uh, step in and they're, um, you know, I hope to see more vocational trainings coming up, um, which is actually a pretty good segue. Uh, so you do a lot of coaching and teaching. Um, how did that all start? Um, were you, were you doing that pretty early on or have you done that a little bit more recently? And uh, what kind of challenges have you faced with uh, being your own type of teacher? So I've been teaching in some capacity or other since 2012 okay so it's been a it's been a i've been doing this a while and i'm doing it because i really love it it's something that 
a lot of artists have to do out of necessity, but I am lucky enough to just enjoy the process of communicating really abstract ideas to people who haven't heard them yet, right? The reason that I love doing art is because I think it's just a very profound field and I spend all day thinking about it. And those thoughts are bouncing around in my head. And it's just fantastic to have people who will voluntarily listen to you rant about your favorite stuff, right? <laughs> that's like awesome. that's, to me, that's, that's crazy how people can think of teaching as, you know, not an enjoyable occupation because basically what you're being asked to do is, oh, here's the thing you, mo- you love the most. Talk about it so that other people learn to love it too. Right. Man, that's the best, right? Yeah. The only time when I was doing teaching and did not enjoy it is um, I was working at Parsons for a few years. And the reason I didn't enjoy being an instructor there is because a lot of people sign up for college to basically party and get drunk, right? right. And then they end up in a classroom and you're trying to teach them stuff, but they don't want to learn the stuff. Right. That's another part of like, why the academy is so deeply broken because these people are basically paying $50,000 a year to not attend and to not want to attend and to barely pass these classes. I'm just like, how is it possible that they're paying mm-hmm. this amount of money to then sit in class and not absorb every last bit of information and ask for more? Mm-hmm. I don't get it. Temperamentally, I just absolutely don't get it. And this might just be the Israeli in me, but the whole college experience thing is an, is an American cultural thing that I, I just, yeah. it skipped me. I don't get it. And I think it's a huge waste of time and money. But right. uh, that said, so I, I, I found myself face to face with students where I say, hey, you know, like, let me help you make this better. Here's how you can think about it so that it will be more successful. And they look you dead in the face and they say, yeah, show me. And you know, they don't want you to show them. They do not care. And it's just a bummer. So when people kind of complain about teaching, what I immediately assume is that they are teaching in institutions or, in, or under circumstances where their students don't want to be there. And when their students don't want to be there and don't want to listen, and you have to force them to want to listen, that is an absolute nightmare. Yeah. But when you're teaching um, either like, like me, you know, I built my own system for teaching or when you're teaching in private art schools where people who sign up for your lessons are hungry, they want to learn, they're, they're there to learn, to improve, then it's, it's one of the more enjoyable things out there. So just have to make sure that you don't judge whether or not teaching is an enjoyable occupation before you found yourself with a class of people who actually want to learn. Because right. if you don't have that, then of course you're gonna suffer. Right. Do your do your students generally like how long do they generally stay with you on average? Um are you kind of like their mentor for multiple years or do they do a lot of people kind of cherry pick you know certain techniques from one artist to another? Um what have you found kind of are you able to kind of build a cohort that is constantly you know the same people and you all know them by name or is it kind of new people that you're constantly teaching you know kind of the same lessons to you? So that that depends on, on what kind of so i have multiple kinds of programs that i teach and they draw different kinds of of individuals right so i have very few um spots 
where I teach um, private lessons, right? By spots, I mean like time spots, time mm-hmm. slots. Like I, I have time for teaching about four or five of these lessons a week. And so they, I'm, I'm very selective uh, about who I choose to take on as a private student. There's a, if you're listening to this and you want to get on my waiting list, then go to kengoshen.com slash lessons and you can, you can get on that waiting list for private students. But essentially I just, I want to, if I'm, if I'm working with a private student, I want to work with somebody who's devoted to the craft and who really wants to improve. And those people usually stay like they, they stay because that's, they know what they're signing up for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are, are group lessons and the group lessons, at least in the online format, which is something that I've been doing uh, since Corona started and has been extremely surprised by how well that's awesome. uh, it's working, you know? And so those lessons, they draw both kinds, you know, they have, I have people who've been with me for for this entire time, basically since it started and they're, they're, they're still sticking around and I love them because we've already kind of developed somewhat of a rapport. So these are the people who speak up the most in class and, you know, I'm used to hearing their voice and it's, it's, it's a real community that's uh, being built. And, uh, and then there are others who are more kind of like, they come, they try, they stick around for a few months and then they move on because a lot of people, you know, for them, it's a, it's a transient hobby, right? Like let's say during the summer, somebody took up a personal project saying, I want to learn how to paint this summer, right? So they will join my lessons for the summer and then winter comes and then they're going to go back to their, to their life. And I totally get that as well. And the beautiful thing about art is people with different levels of commitment can derive a lot of joy and a lot of satisfaction from engaging with the field. And so I get all kinds of people with all kinds of, um, you know, expectations and ambitions with regards to what they're trying to do. And I, I do my best to kind of cater to all of them as, as best I can, because even if somebody says, you know, it's my goal for the month to study a little bit of painting so that I feel more conf- confident. Great, you know, come over, right? Like, the, I, I, let's work together. And by the end of the month, you know, I, I just, it's my job to make you a more confident and better painter. So mm-hmm. this is like a great place for a plug. So if you want to, if you want to join my lessons, it's kengoshen.com slash lessons. That's kengoshen.com slash lessons. Are all of your lessons live or do you do a you know, recorded format where people can watch a recording of a past lesson? So that's a great question because the answer to that is yes and yes. So I do all my lessons live and record them so that they're also available um, to people who missed the live lesson, uh, which is something that I do very, very differently from other painters um, for better and for worse, right? Some, Some people prefer to record everything ahead of time with all the... With, with, with themselves kind of like being alone in the studio, talking to the camera, editing all of it, all of the stuff together and then releasing it as a video. That's, that's the vast majority of painting instruction. And I think what makes my teaching special is that I do everything live. It ends up being recorded, but, right. but originally it's, it's done live. And I believe very, very, very strongly in live lessons because so often in, in art, wow, this is a deep topic. So we're, we're diving. So in art, a lot of the time, you know, I would explain something 
Uh, and then there is going to be a question from the crowd and they're going to be like, oh, you know, but what about this, this and that? And I'm like, yes, right. I couldn't anticipate. And I'm a, I'm a fairly like good teacher, I could say, I think. And, and still, you know, getting that opportunity to answer people's question in, in real time when it's actually happening. Cause sometimes, you know, I would be working on some kind of demo and I would be doing stuff and I, I explain everything. And I, I think it's a hundred percent clear. And then somebody asks a question that lets me know that, oh, I can actually go and expand on this subject right now because they're bringing up something that I didn't even think about. And so I actually think that the students who attend the live lessons don't only end up learning more, they end up by asking the questions, improving the quality of the lesson by a significant margin, because by definition, they're asking me what they don't know, right? And I get, or what they don't understand. And I get to explain it again. They're like a quality control. You know, they're full participants in this, in, in, in the lesson. Because whenever, when it, yeah, whenever, whenever something is unclear, mm-hmm. they're going to let me know. And, and, and this is part of why I don't really love recording stuff on my own because I always have this like demon in my head. What if it's not clear enough? Right. What if they didn't understand it? What if I spent all these hours editing and recording something and then when it goes to the other end the, the student's going to remain confused so by having a live audience of 30 students and when i say is everything clear and these 30 students are quiet you know and they don't have questions and i'm like okay goal accomplished this mm-hmm. has been clear i want to know that everything i'm putting out there is fully explaining all the techniques all the principles i want all of it to be absolute Absolutely understood. And having these people in the room is a check on that. Because whenever something's not clear, you know, they're going to bring it up. And then by the end, when I release this recording, I'm super confident about it because I know I had a class of 30 students. They all got it. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. This is a good video. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I really enjoy doing it that way. My role in a classroom is exactly that. Like I've always taken pride in asking good questions. Um, especially in a live setting, uh, like a classroom and, uh, kind of feel like a advocate on behalf of the other students just to ask. And I, some of them are really dumb questions. Um, but yeah, I, I've always enjoyed that aspect of it. Cause you ask one question and someone else is like, oh, I didn't even think of that. And then they start thinking about, you know, as you're, as you're explaining it and a hundred more questions pop up and the whole direction of the lesson goes to, you know, a little bit more detail. Um, and it's definitely a little bit more contoured. So he's listening. And there's, there's another thing about that, actually, which is, which is super profound and difficult for people to understand if they don't come from, from art. But art, in the way that it, that it should be taught, if it's taught well, is, is nonlinear in a way that, may, how to explain this, different people require different advice in order to improve at painting. What do I mean by that? So if I, let's, let's think back collectively to the days when we were all together in rooms and I taught in a classroom. So everybody's sitting around the model, painting the same model. And I would go student by student by student and and give them advice of how to improve their paintings. So it was very often the case that I would give the exact opposite advice to two people who sat next to each other. For example, you could go on to one student and say, whoa, like hold off on all that paint there, buddy. You're putting way too much paint on the canvas. And by doing that, you're really limiting your ability to have control over your design. Then I step one chair aside and I say, listen, you don't have enough paint on this canvas. It's too thin. 
And if you don't put enough paint on this canvas, you're really not going to get this painting going, right? Mm -hmm. So within the scope of the same 10 minutes, within the time frame of 10 minutes, I've given the advice, add more paint and remove some paint, right? So which way is the right way to go? There isn't, right? There isn't because the, the ability to improve at art is, is determined by kind of like you need to understand what parts of your temperament are preventing you from actually broadcasting on this painterly frequency. It's almost like every art student, every painting student is like a radio with the dials kind of all messed up. And then you mm. have to bring them all to the same radio station. But right. each one of those dials are messed up in different ways for different people. So for right. one person, it's like, oh, I need to take the left one all the way to the right. And right. for another person, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the other way. So to some people, I say, you know, okay, this problem is happening because you're working too fast. You're working way too fast. You have to slow down because this is not going to work in, in, in this speed. And then mm -hmm. the other person is being really timid and, and barely putting anything on the canvas. And I say, listen, we got to get some momentum in here. You've got to work faster. So you, you find that you give the opposite advice to different people based on who they are. And that's how you teach painting. And if it's not a live lesson, and I'm just talking into the ether, right. giving general advice, I think I'm, I'm missing the, like I'm missing a vast majority of, of what actually prevents people from improving at art, right? And right. during a live lesson, somebody could tell me, listen, Ken, I'm having issues A, B, C, and D. And from hearing what they say, I can tailor my advice to them. And then everybody listening to the recording later that relates or has a similar problem, well, then this advice is going to be applicable to them. But at least I get to respond to somebody's actual real life experience and perspective. And I really don't believe that painting can be taught without it because mm -hmm. there is no one good advice. You know, you, it depends on who you are. Like my personal, my, the, like the advice that I would hear from my teachers all the time in painting school is, Ken, you're being too much of a control freak, right? <laughs> Big surprise, right? Big surprise. And my best friend in painting school, Tal, her name, always heard the opposite advice. It's like, Tal, you need more control. Like you're being too crazy with the way that you're using your colors, with the way that you're using your paint. And I always thought that this was so fascinating because we would sit next to each other and then our teachers would go by and just give me the complete opposite advice from what they gave her. And that's not because they're crazy. It's because they're attentive. They're right. attentive to the individual. And so having studied that way made it totally clear to me that, you know, teaching art to the camera without anybody in the room is um it misses it misses an important part of what it means to teach painting i was going to ask how your um your teachers have influenced your teaching style and i was also going to ask how you kind of stand out it seems like the kind of answered by the mm -hmm. same i would guess is you know being they influence my style oh sorry oh, no, I, was, I was gonna say there it seems like um they influence you in terms of yeah you know, you're being much more intensive and also that's how you can kind of stand out uh, against other artists who are making, uh, you know, video lessons by having a live audience and then kind of allowing people to see uh, how you contour to towards each type of person's uh, skill set. Um, I think, I think answering like how they influence my teaching 
whatever I say is probably not going to fully encompass uh, okay. the degree to which I was influenced by them because I owe so much to them. So I studied with two Israeli painters, Aram Gilshuni and David Nippo. And I owe them so much. They are just incredible painters and amazing human beings. And so I just, you know, I can't even, I can't even name <laughs> how they or list how they influenced me because I feel like I'm, I, I'm so deeply influenced by them that their influence has probably seeped into every part of my, basically my, both my art making and my teaching. If I could, if I could be as, as good as, as I, okay. If I could be a teacher and and make people feel as good in my class as I felt in their class, then I will be very, very happy. And hopefully, hopefully I'm accomplishing that because they're really incredible. I was really fortunate to have found their um their lessons and what makes me stand out i think is is not only that i do the live version of the lessons which is indeed something something special but but also that i enjoy it right a lot of a lot of artists are very introverted and they have a stage fright and they're not comfortable doing stuff in front of an audience and it's very stressful you know when you're painting live and you can't mess up and there's a lot of people like looking at literally every move you make right and it's very stressful and, and difficult <laughs> and and a lot of people a lot of people don't want to sign up for this uh pressure and i i totally understand that i just really like being under the gun i i just i love being under pressure and I also love performing. I mean, something that was really kind of like gone from my life ever since COVID started is I haven't been able to perform uh, with my band. So I uh, and 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 I just really love being on stage with with an audience. And this dynamic is something that I enjoy, and I I, I love the adrenaline mm -hmm. of of a live performance. And so I think I actually thrive where a lot of other painting teachers crumble. Uh, luck, it's just luck, you know, I don't, I don't chalk this up to any kind of like thing that I've cultivated or right. whatever. I was just like born this guy who, lo who loves to be under pressure mm -hmm. and with, with an affinity for performance. So I think that's, that's just something that I've managed to, to put into good use, I guess. Would you consider yourself an artist? I mean, uh, wow, that was, I was reading the word artist. Would you consider yourself an extrovert? Um, you know, whenever I take these tests of like personality, whatever thing, uh -huh. I score like very high on extroversion, like in the 90%, 95%. Um, but I don't know anymore. Like, I feel like, like it's, it's, it's weird. And the definitions are, kind of like elusive I, I some people kind of think of of somebody who's an extrovert if they're if they're comfortable being a in a like in a party with 50 other people and you know i am i, I can definitely i can definitely do it but do i enjoy it i don't know like sometimes i do it's sometimes I, I don't yeah i guess it, it really does sometimes i'm like sometimes i really really feel that I need to be alone. It's also a very strange thing for, for an artist to, to be yeah. measured on this axis because, because of the nature of the job, it's being alone 
all the time, every day in the studio by yourself, mm-hmm. right? So it's possible that my yeah kind of like so when i'm with people sometimes i'm like super happy right because man i've been alone all day and then mm-hmm. sometimes it goes the other way when i'm right. with a lot of people i'm just like whoa this is nothing like my studio i need to leave you know yeah <laughs> so yeah. i i don't really know how to answer that right yeah just balance between the two it makes sense um yeah another another way to define uh extroversion and intro- introversion is where you get your if you after you're around people if you feel it re-energize or drain, but, um, I think Drained. most people, yeah, exactly. Most people, especially if you're going to a party or a concert or something, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of energy, but having that safe space where you can just buckle up, focus for hours on end, uh, it makes the extra uh, extroverted moments a lot more uh, meaningful. So that's a beautiful balance. Yeah, Do you I think that like your I podcast, have... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I'm just saying like, based on your definition i don't think i've met the people who feel energized after They're going strange. to these parties or yeah. like i mean and i've met very extroverted people so perhaps perhaps i'm misunderstanding the full definition there but yeah. not definitely not my expertise sorry quick question what uh instrument do you play i uh i favor the bass guitar but i also okay. play guitar and like regular guitar electric guitar i like to sing i can I can play the ukulele. I can play many kind of whatever. Anything that anything with strings, I'm I'm a fan of. Have you given the piano a shot? Yeah, I don't like the piano. Oh, really? Even though I know it technically has strings, right? But um, yeah, that's to me like the piano, the drums, everything that's kind of like percussion. You're like, oh, there you go. Yeah. So okay. my dad. So this is my guitar. That's the Taylor. That's my dad. He just got a Martin, and they just got the stratocaster but uh yeah i'm getting back into i used to play guitar a good bit but i never was disciplined enough and now that i'm older more disciplined and i really want i'm understanding that to be creative you need to have a lot of discipline to start and that's how you get the that's how you squeeze the creativity out and um so i'm I'm kind of thinking about whenever i can get to the place financially to get some piano lessons just to do it right for me for the uh you know from the top you know, learn how to play the piano. So it's all linear. And then I think I can transition back into the guitar. Well, cause I can pick up you know, and play tabs and everything, but I, I want to be able to know like, Oh, that's in the key of C I'm going to play this, this, and that. And I could play these different licks or whatever. I don't know, but yeah, I've been you could do that on the guitar. I can't, but it's just too difficult. I, I'm like my <laughs> ears. I can't, I don't pick up on the different notes, but it kills me. I'll let you, you know once I start teaching guitar online. Okay. Not, yeah. I'm, not going to happen. Not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe how to paint a guitar. Yeah. Um, do you think that your podcast is kind of helping with that, uh, you know, the thrill that you get from being on stage? Do you think it's a nice, uh, caveat? No, no, no actually the podcast, whenever I, whenever I record it, it actually doesn't at all feel like being on stage. It's more like having a conversation one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not, not, not really actually the, the reason that I, started the podcast is more of like a i guess like um how would you even say it like a public service kind of feeling like i i I was feeling that i'm I'm talking to my painter friends or painter colleagues and the conversations are just so interesting Mm -hmm. that so often i would just find myself saying man if this was recorded people would really benefit from listening to just us thinking deeply about these topics 
-hmm. and I felt like people weren't really doing it. So just my, my, my character is such that if I feel like it's necessary and I, and, and I, and it's in my wheelhouse and I don't see it out there, I kind of just have an inclination to make it. Mm-hmm. How's, how's that journey been since you've been uh, starting the podcast? It was towards the beginning of 2020 that you released your first one, right? Ooh, I don't remember. It's, uh, you know, it's been good. It's, uh, it's kind of difficult to, um, justify it in terms of, in terms of the time that it takes and Mm -hmm. the return on it. It's not really, let's just say I'm not in a position where I can afford to devote days of my week to something that doesn't make me any money. Like, Hey, I'm a painter living in New York. Right. So let's, let's just remember that. And so for me, it's been, it's been a really, it's been simultaneously really great to see the feedback that comes back from it because people are loving it. And, but, but I still feel like I don't have, I don't have it resolved how I can make it so that I'm continuing to do this project with the passion that I want to devote to it and still make it financially viable because, you know, unfortunately things have to be financially viable if you want to get them done right and put the hours that it takes to get this project done. Mm -hmm. So uh, to anybody who hasn't listened to my podcast yet, you can search for Art School with Ken Goshen wherever you get your podcast or by going to kengoshen.com and clicking podcast. And uh, yeah, hope you guys like it. It's me talking to other painters about uh, the adventures of paint. Yeah, it's a good podcast. I can definitely attest to that. I will be listening to it moving forward. how do you find your guests? Are they mainly your your friends that you uh, are already you know you already know, or do you reach out to people kind of cold like I did for you? Um, most of the time, I reach out to people cold. It's okay. uh, I've had a few friends on the podcast, but it's it's mostly people whom I find interesting in terms of their creative output, and I just have a lot of questions like, "Hey, I look at somebody's work." I think they're killer. And immediately following that, you know, I have a million questions running in my head about how they got to where they've got, how they do what they do. And I just know that I'm not alone. Like everybody would want to know how these people do what they do and how they got there. So I just figured I can ask these people these questions and everybody can know the answers. And Mm -hmm. that's just a fantastic opportunity. So that's the that's the majority, but um, but I do have plans for an upcoming series of podcasts with uh, a friend that I'm also a fan of. Uh, his name is Ilya Gefter, and we're kind of bouncing around the idea of doing a series of podcasts together that's more thematic. So we'll see how it goes. Like right now, every episode is kind of standalone, but mm-hmm. uh, there might be some serial stuff in our future. On the same podcast, so you're all gonna, yeah, kind of like re, like returning guests and things like right. that, so that we can expand on topics. And and um, I'm still playing around with the format just because it's uh, it's new for me, right? And I want to find a way to to make it so that it's both enjoyable, productive, and also sustainable. And so, right now, I don't, I don't have all the answers mm-hmm. on that yet, except the one answer I do have is that if you guys are listening to my podcast and you love it and you want to 
make sure that I produce more of these episodes. The way to support the show is to become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Ken Goshen. The more people support me on Patreon, the more I have the bandwidth and the financial resources to devote to doing passion things, you know, like creating platforms that have good painterly and artistic information that are out there for free. Like that's my goal. I want everything to be free between free and super affordable. That's mm-hmm. the goal so that anybody who wants to learn art can easily do it. That's my plan. And if that's a cause you think is worth supporting, you can sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash Ken Goshen. You'll also gain access to like 150 hours of video content at this mm-hmm. point. So for the price of a cup of coffee, I think that's a wicked deal. That is. That is. Has, uh, been, has Patreon really been helping uh, put promote your brand so far are you still would you consider you're still definitely building it up to the point where you feel like it's it's uh patreon does nothing to promote a brand if people if people uh think that way then they should they should change the change the channel it's uh what you do is like you build your brand elsewhere and then hopefully the brand that you build will bring people to a point where they want to get more of the stuff that you do right so Mm -hmm. if people see what I'm up to on Instagram and they get these short videos that they find very productive and very useful. And then they think, Hey, if I pay this guy $2 a month, which is Mm -hmm. nothing, then you get to attend three live lessons this month alone. Each lesson is like two hours and that's half the price of a cup of coffee. Then they want to sign up, but they would never have signed up for it. If I didn't build up my reputation and, and my credentials, on other platforms. So Patreon mm-hmm. is more like where people end up board. after after your brand is is already to some extent established. And of course, you know, there's still more work to be done. I'm not saying that I'm done in by any means. We're like always always moving forward. And there's just a lot of, there's just a lot of work to do, but Patreon is is not is not uh is not a tool for brand building. It's the it's a tool for monetizing what you're already up to kind of that's a pretty good segue into you know, the, the the way that i noticed was you know, you're very prominent on instagram already uh what have been some of the lessons that you've learned in building up that following is it mainly based off of you know being engaged with your followers or producing a certain amount of content um per per month or per day kind of what mm-hmm. tactics have you found that have been best at expanding your reach and allowing you to ultimately bring in possibly more customers for, uh, or more students rather for your classes. Um, just to make sure I understand this question is like, what lessons have I learned in attempting to grow my audience on social media? Is that what you mean? Correct. Yeah. So I, there's so much, <laughs> there's so, there's, social media the is, is yeah, such, yeah. is such a huge, huge topic, but, but, um, there's just, many things that work on Instagram that don't work for other platforms. And what you need to understand when you're doing social media, and it's it sounds easy, but it's so hard, is to get into the mind of what people who are on Instagram are looking for and then what the algorithm is looking right. for. And these these two things are indirect conflict sometimes unfortunately and this is a difficult thing to negotiate but just just to kind of give you an example right so 
let's say I'm putting up pieces on my website, right? And if I put up pieces on my website, what I want is a clean scan of my work where the colors are really accurate and, and everything's professional. And I just put that on my website and it looks all pristine and nice. If you take this kind of work and you put it on Instagram, it's simply going to flop. It's not going to work because people on Instagram don't want to see professional looking perfect scans of your work. Most of the times they really prefer seeing some of the context, right? They want the work to be on the easel with some paintbrush next to it with hope, mm-hmm. maybe even your hand in the frame. So these kinds of images that bring people into your space makes mm-hmm. them feel all, it's almost like a mixture between your professional website and your private blog. Instagram is kind of really in the middle, wow. in the middle between them. So sometimes mm-hmm. you could take the same painting, right? The same painting, upload a professional scan of it to Instagram. Everybody scrolls past. It's totally boring. But mm-hmm. if you put it on the coffee table and some two brushes like thrown in the background with some paint or whatever, like literally the same painting is going to get three times the engagement just because of the presentation. So what I, what I learned, (laughs) what I, what I learned from Instagram is things that work for your website don't work for Instagram. Right. And now let me give you another example. You know how things work on YouTube, right on YouTube. Um, which by the way, I need to get a handle on because I, my YouTube channel needs improvement because I don't, I don't have the bandwidth. But right. essentially, when, when you look at YouTube videos, they start with, hey, everybody, welcome to my studio. Today, I'm going to be talking about the da ba 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 And there's like a minute or two of intro, right? Which on YouTube is fantastic because when people go to your, to your channel on, on YouTube, they, they usually get to your video by having searched for something like how to use oil paint to do X, Y, Z. And then I start the video by saying, hey, everyone, welcome. Today, I'm going to teach you how to use oil paint to do X, Y, Z. So people are like, great, I'm totally signed up for it. I'm listening to the whole thing. However, on Instagram, people don't search for your videos, right? right. They can't search how to use oil paint to do X, Y, Z. They, they just don't. So the environment is very different such that basically people are being bombarded with content that they didn't even know they needed to see. And then you hope to grab their attention. So on Instagram, you just can't do these intros, right? I see a lot of people doing these intros, but these intros are relevant for YouTube, not for Instagram. On Instagram, you need to start. So I'm mixing this color like in the middle of a sentence (laughs) because people are like, oh, what's he doing there? And then then they they are compelled to to continue watching but if you, you if you put that minute and a half introduction before an Instagram video you're signing up for failure right mm-hmm. so a lot of a lot of success on social media has to do with, with not taking for granted what you think works on your website or on YouTube or in any other place but understand what is the ecosystem of Instagram really like and how should that in, and use that in order to inform how you pre- present your content that that is the key that's smart. Yeah. Form and function. Uh, and that's a really good point. Actually, that was another question that I had that you just answered. Because I, yeah, I was curious, like, whenever you're just taking photos of a painting, it just seems kind of boring, you know, but your account, like, you just can't help but keep scrolling. And it's because you have these dollops of paint and you have your hand in there and it shows you using the, um, you know, trying to get the the uh, oil out and putting it onto, you know, your palette. And yeah, it seems a lot more interactive. You kind of get, you feel like you're looking at things from your perspective, for, from your point of view. 
Um, it's a lot more engaging. So I thought that was pretty cool. That you're able to still kind of carry this, like this dramatic effect with your artwork where it's not just a bland, like here's a photo of my paintings. It's kind of like, here's me in action doing my thing. You can see my personality, you know, that I'm an artist. You can see that I'm, I'm, you know, actually creating this, this product. Here's a picture of the model. Uh, so I, I really like that just from my perspective, it makes it a lot more engaging and just, um, appealing to the eyes. Thank you. And I think, I think that's the key. The key is to think, think about, okay, the work you do is the work you do. I'm not telling you, you got to be better painters to succeed on Instagram. There's a lot of people who are mediocre painters who succeed on Instagram. And I don't consider myself such a great painter at all. You just have to think about what are people, uh, well, I tend, I, I'll respectfully disagree, but whatever. It's like, you have to think about what are people going to want to see when they scroll in their endless feed of randomness, and then they stumble on your stuff. What's going to make him pause and say, oh, that's worth my attention, right? And, and that's just a different way of thinking. And people have a very hard time adopting that way of thinking because that's, it's very far from what artists are used to considering. You know, if you're an artist and you make paintings, what you kind of take for granted is the gallery experience. Like, let's say I take all my paintings, I put them in a gallery show. People come to the gallery to see okay. my work right. and then they stand in front of it for many long minutes. And I didn't have to ask them to do that. So that's kind of what artists are conditioned to thinking. And it's very difficult to make the switch and, and assume that whoever sees your art on, on Instagram kind of saw it by mistake. They didn't go to the gallery to see what you're about. You just appeared in their feed. And you have to think, how, how can I make it so that they really want to continue to look at it and engage with it and comment on it or share it? And this has very little to do with the stuff we used to do, we're used to doing as, as painters. It's just mm -hmm. a totally different field. So my, my interaction with Instagram and with social media has been, has been one of learning, right? It's, it was a very new thing for me and still sometimes is. You know, I think to myself, I, I upload something and it doesn't go very well. I don't think to myself, like my, my first instinct is not, oh, that painting's bad, right? No, my, my, my first instinct is I did something wrong with the presentation. Yeah. Something about the presentation of that painting is, and, and, and this, this really helps with, you know, mental health issues because some, sometimes people put right. paintings on Instagram and they, they, they don't get a lot of likes. And then they say, mm -hmm. oh man, this painting is not as good as I thought it was. No, man, it could, it's possible that if you put it next to a cup of coffee, it would do great. So right. you just have to learn to detach the value of the art from the value of the posts because yeah, it's completely incongruous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. That is such a good point. Cause I, I've, you know, I'm scrolling through as many artists profiles as possibly can get my hands on. And that's one thing that I've noticed is, um, yeah, some artists have really, really good paintings, not a lot of followers, and it's definitely not because of their painting. It's a whole, you're taking photos and posting to the internet. That's a whole different skill set than actually the content of the photo. And then there's some artists out there that have a lot of followers, but they have this big personality and they take good, uh, good photos and people get to understand, you know, who they are and they see them at, at work in the studio, but their art might not necessarily be very detail oriented or super, you know, fine. And, you know, just like, uh, I hate to say the word, but really beautiful and eye-catching. You know, if you see it in a gallery, you might not think a lot, but if you saw their Instagram page, you'd be like, oh, this is a cool dude or a cool girl. I'm going to follow their their um, their account. So that's a really good point. One thing that I like that you mentioned was that you're, you're competing for people's time. 
um, you know, their attention. And so that brings us to my next question is for you uh, within your own business, it sounds like you're pretty, pretty busy. You got your hands full. How do you manage your own time and attention between painting, teaching, marketing and selling, doing the podcast, thinking about next new opportunities? That's it. You got your hands full and then managing your accountant, accounting, your finances, you know, ordering supplies, making sure that you're, you have enough in your studio to maintain, you know, the work that you're producing. That's a lot to manage and a lot to think about. So what are some, some things that you've learned in that process that you can tell the listener? It's hard. <laughs> it's, it's a handful. Yeah. Um, my current, my current way of um, kind of navigating this field is I literally devote my days of the week to the different subject, to the different okay. subjects, right? So I have, I take, I take Shabbat off. I don't work on Saturday. I, I try to keep Shabbat like, uh, mm -hmm. like I should. Mm -hmm. And and everybody should have one day where you just like relax, go to the park, cook some watch food. the UFC. Yeah. I Okay. Watch the UFC, right? Uh, so that's my <laughs> that's my Shabbat, and then I have six other days. So as of now, the division is such that I have two days of teaching, two days of painting, and two days of marketing. Uh, so Thursday is a marketing day. So hopefully, the time that we're spending here together <laughs> is yep. is aligned uh -huh. with that goal, right? So yes. when you ask me, can you do an interview? I say Thursday. Thursday is a marketing day. My marketing days are Thursdays and Sundays, right? My painting days are Fridays and, and, and Mondays. I'm just, you know, former military guy, right? I need order. So I just, I just divided up my week and into, and, and then, and then, you know, the more, the more things change, right? As, as hopefully the, the business aspect um, grows and, and, and improves, maybe, maybe the balance can be different, right? Uh, there were times in my life when I had to teach more than two days a week. Uh, to make ends meet. Now I'm lucky enough that two days a week uh, gets me by, and and uh, assuming I also sell some paintings, which is you know always a blessing. Um, and you know, hopefully in the future the balance can be such that I don't have to spend two days on marketing. Like maybe I teach one day, one day marketing, and then maybe I can paint four days. That'd be mm -hmm. awesome. Um, but it's a it's a matter of recognizing where the business currently is what the business currently requires and making sure that you allocate the required time in order to make sure that everything is ticking. Because if something falls through the cracks, you know, I don't have a boss or anybody that I can ask for help. Like I'm by myself. So I need to really make sure that I'm steering this ship into safety. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Do you have any software that you use to help you manage your schedule or anything to help you manage with your finances, keeping track so you're staying above um, above board with your taxes and you know all of those kind of boring business things that everybody still has to pay attention to. Yeah, I had I had one. I stopped using it because it wasn't it wasn't good enough. Like what okay. I ended up doing is, and this is this comes at a cost to me, um, but I just. I own, I, <laughs> this is not, don't think this is advice, people. This is like not an advice. But what I ended up doing is I just, I only take payment through PayPal now. That's it. And then I have everything in one place. And PayPal smart, has, yeah. has, it's not smart. It's, 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 <laughs> do, it's not smart because a lot of people say, I don't have PayPal. Can I pay by credit card? And I tell them, no. And I miss business that way. I know I'm losing 
and customers that way. But it's the price that I'm paying right now for peace of mind in terms of financial records, taxes, all that stuff. Because at the end of the year, I get my PayPal report. Every transaction is, is detailed. I have all of it on record. And I'm just like, I take that and I file it, right? right. It's just like that. So I've made the sacrifice of losing people who want to pay me cash, losing people who want to pay me by other means, um, and just like PayPal. <laughs> well, in, in your case, simple. in your defense, I mean, it's not difficult to download PayPal and PayPal has been around for a while. Everybody should have one. So I know, but you know, <laughs> I don't, it's, it's when you read marketing books, which people right. should, by the way, they tell you, you've got to make it as easy as possible to somebody to buy your product. And that mm. is, that makes perfect sense to me. And so I understand that on that front, I have room for growth, let's call it. I have, there's room for improvement. And hopefully in the future, when I'm in a position where I can allocate this responsibility to somebody else, then I could implement, you know, credit card payments, bank transfer payments, whatever. Sometimes I use bank transfers when it's like large sums, like when it's a commission right. painting or something like that. And then I have this like small documents for all the like very big transactions that are, you know, better done by bank transfer. But in general, like, 99% of the business is, is just PayPal. And in the future, when, when I can, again, delegate this responsibility, then, then I, can make these, um, I can make these adjustments to make it so that things are even more accessible to people who, for some reason, choose not to have PayPal. Um, right. There are those people. I don't understand it, but I mm-hmm. respect it. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I, I was going to ask, um, but I guess you kind of answered is, you know, do you plan on the future having some some type of assistant that can help you with the marketing and the accounting and finance so that you can manage, you know, actually creating the product more, do more of that, and they do more of you know the stuff that you don't really, you know, uh, yeah, you know, I always have dreams of letting other people do stuff, and right now, you know, my girlfriend does a lot of uh, of, of stuff with me, so okay. where she and she, she's she's the best, and okay. she also has. She has a handle on, on things that I don't do as well. And for the most mysterious reasons in the world, she actually enjoys doing that stuff too, which perplexes and amazes <laughs> me to no end. That's um, a good balance. Yeah, yeah but, but beyond that, I definitely would like to, to delegate more in the future. But this, this goes full circle to what I used to hear from my teachers in, in painting school. I'm a control freak. It's hard for me to let go of responsibilities because I think I have enough experience. Like people are slackers, man. It's like, it's hard. I mean, I, I it's hard for me to put my destiny 100%. in the hands of other people. I need to really, mm-hmm. really trust uh, the people who, who work with me. And I think this is like a, I guess, a psychological thing that I have to work through to make sure that if I'm, it's hard for me to give responsibilities away. I like doing right. things myself because... I think I do them fairly well. And I like knowing that if some, exactly, I like, yeah. I'm comfortable blaming myself and saying here, exactly. I messed up here. Yeah, here I wasn't perfect, but mm-hmm. I just, I just don't want to be in a situation where I'm mad at other people for dropping right. the ball on my behalf. I just, I'm, I'm not cut out for that right now, but yeah, you know, it's hopefully we'll get set. to a point in the, in, in yeah. the future where that can be done because uh, there's a lot of stuff that I need to be doing that, that, I guess it'd be better mm-hmm. <laughs> if other people did them, but yeah. uh, you know, every step, small steps at a time. Yeah. Managing people is um, it's a very critical skill set to growing your business, whatever type of entrepreneur you are. 
and uh, it has a lot to do with emotional intelligence and foresight and being able to you know, articulate exactly what you need done in a format that's digestible. Um, it's, and then that's a whole new set of stressors in and of itself. And then while you're working, you're constantly thinking like, okay, did I give enough direction? I haven't heard back in long enough. Okay. Or they're, they're reaching out to me too often. It's like, oh, wow. I thought this would be a lot easier. Just like, Hey, do this please. And then come back like, oh, great. But no, it's like, oh, wow. I feel like an infant whenever it comes to uh, managing people in, in terms of working with them. Uh, but while we're on the subject of managing people and as we're starting to wrap up, um, so we've kind of already gone through marketing uh, and, and you know how you basically get to the point of actually making the sale. And then but afterwards, uh, whenever you're you know you have your your customer, your client collector, how do you manage that relationship moving forward? Um, and are there any you know, once again, any tips or tricks or anything that you've learned to do or not to do uh, in regards to you know, uh, managing that relationship with your collectors? So with be, with collectors like people who bought paintings and stuff Correct. like that, yes, um, not good at it. It's uh, it's just plain and simple. And unfortunately, in the art world, sometimes, not sometimes, most of the times, when you sell through galleries, you don't even know who bought the stuff, mm. and that's part of what uh, that's part of the leverage that the gallery holds over you. Right, because the gallery takes a cut, right? And sometimes they take an absurd cut, like fifty percent. Fifty percent. Is it, lot, everybody man. hearing this? Fifty yeah. percent, right? And what what allows them to take this cut is they say, "Listen, we have a base of collectors, people who are subscribed to our notifications, and we know how to sell this stuff." And then they, they will lose their leverage if they give me the contact to all the right. people who bought my work, because then I could sell to them directly. So mm -hmm. there's a kind of annoying relationship between artists and, and galleries. And I, I just don't, a lot of the paintings that I've sold through galleries, I have no idea where they are. Um, so yeah. I can't really maintain that relationship at all. And this is by design. This is the gallery's right. decision not to yep. share this information with me. Mm -hmm. That said, I also sold a lot of paintings at art fairs and that's kind of like the benefit of art fairs because uh, you're there and you're selling directly to customers and I take full responsibility for the fact that even when I look those people in the eye I'm still not very good at keeping that relationship going just because I I don't have the bandwidth right. I don't have the bandwidth and I think this this ties back to the previous topic like here's one thing that i would that would be like one of the first things that i'd be delegating and just 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 you bringing it up makes me think about it now because this is something that is easy for me to delegate because it's not something i'm good at right i don't like sitting and writing emails to people uh that's not my that's not my forte right so i want to focus on the things that i'm good at so let's say top of the list of things that i would delegate uh would be keeping a more ongoing relationship with some with the people who who purchased my work that is mm -hmm. actually something that that is um yeah it's it's weird because you bring it up and it does it does it does ring up like it does ring true as something right. that you would want to be doing but i think it hasn't really been on my mind because because most galleries withhold this information for me right. so i'm just like okay i guess that's not something i'm going to spend time doing but right now that you bring it up, I, I kind of like yeah. how you think about it. And I think I'm going to implement some of that. Yeah, that's one thing that I, I want to change um, about 
once again, I think it's beautiful coming from an outsider's perspective, not being an artist and not coming from an artist family or anything. And just thinking about it from the ground up. It's like, I personally want to meet artists locally. I want to get to meet them directly. I don't need to go through a business. And then also, you know, if I'm selling someone else's art and just being a lead generator, I don't need 50%. I just want to help, help them sell it 10% just to help us cover the cost of uh, what it takes to run the website and do all the marketing and everything like that and make a livable wage, you know, for me to live off of, uh, by, you know, helping out as many people as I can. Um, but I think it would be cool to have some type of gallery online, you know, marketplace where you can basically take a personality profile. Some people don't like that, but, you know, just to be like, you know, here's a little bit about my background. Here's, you know, you're Israeli, you went into the military, uh, this is the type of art style that you have. This is, you know, where you're based and all these certain things kind of start to filter down to a group of people that would be an ideal, you know, group of uh, customers, potential customers. And then whenever you throw in, you know, so like a lot of people, their favorite artist is their three-year-old. The kid sucks at painting, but they really like the person. They really like that kid. So they're going to put the paintings up on the wall or put the little drawings up. And so I think the same mentality, whenever you get to meet the artist, you're much more likely to support them directly, almost like a Patreon for podcasts, but instead, you know, you find some way or another to be continually engaged with the artist, and then it motivates them as well um, uh, to be able to, to know exactly what their customers are liking. You know, they can get more commissions overall if they have extra art in their studio and, you know, um, and it might not be their very best work, but it's still is good. it's good and people, you know, will enjoy it at a lower price point. Maybe there's some type of rental that you can do where you deliver it to them or they pick it up like on a local scale. Um, and then also, if you wanted to open up the door to financing of some sort, just find as many ways for the artists to get directly connected to the collectors and start to build their own you know, direct channel of communication and completely bypass the you know, traditional sense of what a gallery is. And kind of revamp it into today's modern, you know, technological world. I think there's some solution out there that artists can get paid more and their lives can be easier, especially if you're doing all of your orders through a select few sites. Um, you know, those sites should do their best to help, you know, uh, package up all of the financials in a, in a format that's going to help you with filing taxes at the end of the year. And, uh, and, and also have trying to get you as much money as they possibly can um, per painting. So that's definitely where my mind's been um, on, on that front. And if you have anything to uh, recommend or anything you don't think would work, I'm always ears. Uh, there's definitely an opening, right? There's an opening because a lot of artists are looking for tools um, to, to make this kind of stuff mm -hmm. easier. Right. But uh, I don't know. I mean, there's 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 many mm -hmm. online marketplaces, and it's definitely like not my field. How to make right. like an art selling website? I'm not. I'm not. Let's say I, I haven't. I haven't built one, but I I do have a lot of of of. <laughs> I have a lot of opinions. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh man, the guy has opinions. Um, And I think I think what we're up against is something way deeper and way more philosophical, uh, and it's the fact that the whole establishment, the whole um, you could even call it like professional class in the art world, that's supposed to tell people, "Oh, this is worth buying. This is high quality. This is good." These people can't be trusted, right? Mm -hmm. These people have their own agendas, and. When you look at the art that sells for exorbitant prices, right. 
this would fall into the category of the paintings that you were describing earlier that are, let's just say, less than obviously valuable. Let's right. put it, let's put it kindly, right? right? So, and when you see the top galleries in the world selling these objects that the vast majority of individuals would walk into that gallery and say, I don't get it, right? I don't get it. Why is this selling for millions? What is going on here? Just recently, a sculptor sold literally nothing, nothing. A sculpture that is like vacuum, like air, right? And it sells for millions. When this thing happens, you know, I don't think you can, you can easily talk to me about a marketplace, right? Because the whole market's totally fundamentally broken. It's fundamentally broken at the point where how do we designate value, right? Right. If we don't even have that under some kind of consensus, it's just really difficult because you go to these online marketplaces and it's just flooded. And how I'm just imagining being a young collector, right? Who's not educated in the arts and you can't just buy a painting for $5, right? These are things that take a lot of time to make. So you buy it for $2,000, $3,000. That's still a cheap painting. So the price point is pretty high uh, for entry. And I'm assuming a lot of people are reluctant to get into it because you don't want to make a bad purchase for $3,000. You don't want to because it's just too expensive to just gamble on your own taste. And right. people feel ignorant and worried uh, and, and rightly so because if you're just like in the market, you think, well, if I'm going to spend $3,000... I may, I may want to ask an expert to make sure that I'm making a good investment. And who are these experts? The gallerists, right? The gallerists can say, no, I've shown this artist before. He sold really well. He's doing amazing in Berlin. They always do amazing in Berlin. Everybody's <laughs> in Berlin, right? They're doing amazing at Art Basel, right? They, they tell you all these stories. And, and that's really the role that, that gallerists and curators play. They are like, they're like the gatekeeper, right? They have, right. They have the authority to make it so that collectors feel comfortable paying these prices for the works. But, you know, I'm pretty, uh, I'm, I'm just doubt, doubtful that you can have this, this kind of like institutional credibility that makes sure that people feel that they're getting their money's worth and when they're buying the art online. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. But for me, when I'm thinking about this subject, what I, what I feel like is missing is is really art education, right? If some, if we, we have a whole generation of people who are now in their 30s and their 40s, you know, they're making money, they're the right client base for purchasing art. And I'm sure these people are just, I'm, I'm sure they want art. I just know that they probably don't, don't have the confidence or the education that whatever it is that they buy is going to be a good purchase. It's going to mm -hmm. be a good decision. So... I kind of think about it, you know, and, and, and of course, I'm, I, I don't know, this is not like a short term solution, but I right. would want to see more museums give like these tours, young entrepreneurs at the Met, something like that to learn to appreciate art, to, 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 to build it from the bottom up to make sure that these people who, who have money and who want to have art in their life feel that they're actually able to make the right decisions with regards to the art that they buy for for themselves and so right. i think i think we just have we have a knowledge problem but it's possible that i'm biased because i'm an educator and i right. always look at things and, and i seem to find a knowledge problem um yeah. but hey man if you're if you're tech savvy and you think you can build that marketplace that solves everything by all means man do it <laughs> do yeah. it i wish you all the best with that and i, I agree fullheartedly i think that the more people understand what goes into painting um 
then the more they're going to be able to be their own own judge of what's valuable and be able to identify good quality. And uh, obviously one, one good way of doing that is maybe taking a few classes. So as we wrap up uh, one last time, if people wanted to take some of your classes, listen to your podcast or just follow you on Instagram, how can they find you? Okay. So if you want to hear more from me, a lot of rambling, uh, uh, the first place to go would be my website. That's kengoshen.com, kengoshen.com. If you want to study with me, that's kengoshen.com slash lessons. That would uh, lead you to all the stuff that's available, uh, both recorded and live events. If you want uh, less rambling from me on a daily basis, you can follow me on Instagram. That's at kengoshen. That's K-E-N-G-O-S-H-E-N. And if you want to subscribe to my podcast, please look for Art School with Ken Goshen. We're Ever you get your podcasts. Awesome. Well, Ken, I really appreciate you joining uh, us for this podcast today, taking time out of your uh, schedule. And um, yeah, let's keep in touch.